part of the conversations that happen around my kitchen table. He's John Brannion, and he's been a stand-up comic for more than 30 years. She's Amanda McKinney, and she's been my daughter for her whole life. Our family believes laughter is a gift from God. We often discover it while discussing culture, faith, and family. So go ahead and pull up a chair, neighbor. Can I call you Carl? There's plenty of room here for you. Focusing on what she does wrong. It's right for you to take responsibility In a situation where there's a whole bunch of kids squabbling, and you're one of them, if you rise above the group by saying, I'm sorry, it was me, I did this, this, and this, and you don't point fingers at someone else, that's how I'm going to know that you're a man. That's what I told him. And so we had that conversation like two weeks ago, you know, and and we've kind of referenced it a couple of times since then, just the in-depth conversation was a couple weeks ago. So, so you're reading Prince Caspian. Friday, we're reading Prince Caspian. And what I was saying before we paused was that C.S. Lewis does a really great job of, of showing these personalities. And and I have four children with very distinct personalities. We were talking earlier about how Emmy, who's a daughter, is very disagreeable. <laughs> she does not care about help trying to get people to like her. Whereas Silas, who's the youngest and a boy, he is very agreeable and he wants to get along with a lot of people and doesn't take much to really upset him if you're like I'm not happy you did that he immediately feels very bad about it and usually bursts into tears so so those are the you know examples of two kids who have the same parents and the same you know relatively the same upbringing but they just have very different tendencies and C.S. Lewis captures the personalities of his people very well so first of all the the story is amazing because God's army you know and the word God I don't even think is even in the book anywhere. But but the, the good guys, that army, blows the horn and um, brings, brings the four children back from um, England to Narnia. They don't know that that's what happened at first. They were in England. All of a sudden, the stuff starts, you know, shimmering and, and kind of losing focus. And they, they feel their bodies being you know, pulled, and then all of a sudden they're in Narnia again. And it even takes them a while to realize that's where they are, Um, which is funny, because it had been one year since they came out of the wardrobe, and still, despite the fact that it wasn't all that much time, they hadn't done a lot of talking about it in England, um, because the professor had told them that they they shouldn't discuss it with, unless they know that somebody else has also had a similar traveling experience, and then they were like, well, how will we know? And he's just basically like, you'll know based on the way they talk and the way they present themselves. You'll know. So they, it's been a year and they haven't talked a lot about it and then they get sucked into Narnia and it still takes them a little while to realize where they are. And they um, arrive at what used to be their castle. But it's the ruins of their castle and the, the woods have grown up all around it. So it's several thousand years right, in the future. I was future. just about to say that time goes different in yes. Narnia than it does in... Yes, time does not work the same. So they're children again, even though they became adults in Narnia and then went back through the wardrobe and appeared in England as children again. They're children in Narnia now, um, and it's a thousand... It doesn't actually say how far into the future, but it's like many hundreds of years into the future. Um, So there's a whole history of Narnia now that they have to learn. And so this dwarf catches them up on most of the highlights since they've been gone. But he doesn't realize that they're the kings and queens from old either. Everybody in Narnia thinks that that whole thing that happened with High King Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy 
are over. fairy tales. Oh, it's fairy that they're tales. They're myths. They're legends from, you know, centuries ago. And so most of the people living there don't even have any recollection of... Don't believe they were real people. Yes. Right. Yeah, they think it was just legends. And so basically what happens, and you don't learn all of this all at once, but basically the Prince Caspian is the one who blew the horn because he was told that it had ancient powers to bring help, but he didn't even know what it would do. Some people say it would recall the ancient kings and queens. Some people say Aslan himself would come if he blew the horn. But he blows the horn, and it takes like several days before the children are able to make their way to his camp. And so as far as he's concerned, nothing happened. Nothing happened. And so the army starts to get restless. But the reason I was bringing it up is because his army is literally like woodland creatures that most of the humans don't even think exist anymore. And the trees have stopped um, having personalities of their own. They stopped talking. So the trees don't talk anymore. And these woodland creatures are a ragtag group. He's got one giant who's a, you know, blithering idiot. He's very loyal and very enthusiastic. And also... Very dumb. Yeah, he doesn't. He actually blows a battle for them because he jumps too soon. He doesn't follow the orders, not because he was rebellious, but because he's just dumb. And he, and then he goes in the corner and cries, and his tears fall on the mi- the mice, which makes them angry. <laughs> so then he cries some more because he can't do anything right. So you've got you know you've got that. These mice with swords are super brave, but they're tiny, and so they're basically worthless. The bears, the bulgy bears, just like to eat and sleep all the time, and uh, and suck their paws. That was that was another funny scene from Friday, where the bulgy bear comes up and asks if he can be one of the liaisons to the other army, and he's like, "It was an ancient right of the bears that we should be able to be one of these liaisons." And Peter's like, "I can't even think how anyone remembers that, but he, he's right. You know, the bears are supposed to be able to to claim their right, so I'm going to do that." But he goes, "But don't suck your paw." And the bear was like, what? I was like almost uh, offended that anybody would even say that to him. And the, the little dwarf, who's always really gruff and negative and, you know, disagreeable. The disagreeable dwarf says, you're doing it right now! <laughs> and he's like, huh? And he like pulls his paw out of his mouth. Anyway, so you have to read it. It's really good. So what does this have to do? So... So while they're traveling, while the kings and queens are remembering that they were kings and queens, they're like coming back into their adulthood instead of being children. Instead of being children from England, they're relearning how to be kings and queens in Narnia. And as they're traveling to Caspian's army, because it's a several days journey to get there, they have to make decisions about where to turn and what paths to take. And then there's like enemies, you know, enemy encampments and things that they have to avoid and it's hard to find their way around because they remember the, they used to know the land very, very well, but it's changed now. It's different. And there's like a gorge where there used to just be a little river. And so um, they're, they're struggling. And as a group, they're trying to make decisions. But um, Lucy is the one who says she saw Aslan standing on the other side of the gorge, or standing to the left of them. And the team, including High King Peter, had already decided to go right. And so then they have to take a vote because, you know, Lucy's like, I saw him and he, he was telling us to go that way. And they're like, well, how do you know? And she's like, I just know. It's Aslan, you know. I saw his face. He wants us to go that way. And they're like, you're just a little girl. You know, you're going to get us. That would be the more dangerous way. If we go that way, we, we could run out of food. We could, you know, get lost even further. It took us forever to get to this point. We don't want to go backwards. Um... And so they end up going the opposite direction to where Lucy tells them Aslan is. And they run into enemy 
territory, and they get shot at, and they have to backtrack anyway, so it takes them, like, you know, half a day to walk the other way, and then they have to retrace those steps. Um, they end up back where they were, and Lucy sees Aslan again. This time, he tells her she needs to tell the, the kids to come, the other kids to come with her, and if they don't come, she has to go alone, and she's afraid She's afraid because she doesn't have to wake them up because the worst thing for a youngest child to have is her older siblings mad at her and not believing her. And that's probably what they're going to do. So all, all of that happens. And um, eventually she convinces them to go. And it takes them... It takes all of the children a different length of time to see Aslan, who's right in front of them. Lucy sees him the whole time and she's following right behind him. They're following Lucy. But on the journey, they don't see him all at once. They only see him at different times. Right. And when Peter finally sees him, um, incidentally, Susan is the last one to see him because Susan has become consumed with her own fears and she's very grown up now. She wants to be more grown up. Um, so that's interesting considering the conversation. Yeah, but She wants to be empowered. She wants to be empowered. Um, but Peter, so they all have different re reactions to when they finally do see Aslan. And Susan apologizes to Lucy because she had been the most wicked. Not Edmund. Edmund was the first one to go with Lucy and the first one to see Aslan, which, if you've read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, is very redemptive and beautiful, and C.S. Lewis is a mad genius. Um, but he, so he sees Aslan and doesn't really have anything to apologize for. But Susan is worried because she's like, how am I going to talk to Aslan when I had a suspicion it might be him, but I was just too afraid and I wanted to get out of the woods and I didn't want to, you know, admit it. And Lucy's like, well, maybe you won't have to say much at all. And so while they're discussing that, Peter walks straight up to Aslan and basically shakes his paw. He basically says, Aslan, it's so good to see you, and I need to apologize because I took the group in the wrong direction. It was my fault. And so I, I pointed that out to Colin, to Colin because the truth is, in the story, Susan was clearly the one with the worst attitude. Peter did make the wrong call. But he didn't necessarily do it, and he had good motives. He didn't do it for bad or selfish reasons. He feels the weight of being responsible for the entire company because they all defer to him. He's the high king, and what he says goes, and he knows it, and he's always thinking about the fact that he has to take the responsibility. And so even though it wasn't a malicious, like, mistake, he still went to Aslan and said, I'm sorry, it was me. And Aslan doesn't say... Oh, don't worry about it. He doesn't say anything at all, really, except just welcome, you know. And so I pointed that out to Colin because I, I could not have asked for a better, like, fictional depiction of exactly what I'm trying to help him understand. Not Peter is bad and Susan is good. That's not my point. But that that's what a high king does. A high king says, it was me, because that's how you take the responsibility with which comes power with which comes respect and deference and the submission that the rest of the group gives to him. He also right. gets the biggest sword and the biggest shield, which I think has a pretty big appeal. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's an important thing for a nine-year-old boy. It, it's true. When he first was picking them out, like they were picking out their, their armor and things, their weapons, he was like, I would want a shield and a sword. And I said, well, you have to earn it. You know, you have to do things that, that you would have to do the right things with them. You would have to defend your group with them and know that you aren't going to just go whacking at the jungle vines with them, you know? Or your sisters. Or your sisters. Yeah. Right. And so, is it sinking in? I'm sure 
not. I'm sure that there are many, many uh, more conversations to be had, but... Well, don't be, don't be too sure about that. You never know for sure what sort of little, little lessons penetrate and, and stick. You just never know. Well, that's... That's my anecdote, or my analogy, to describe what boys are being given, what C.S. Lewis is doing to instruct young boys, for example. That's not being done for the girls. There's nothing in... I, I haven't read the book She Deserves Better, but I guarantee you they're not calling women to that kind of accountability. Well, there's certain... You can tell by the things that are posted about that book. Right. That some, of the th- some of the statistics that they posted... That were posted that, that are supposed to be shocking, and, and you know you're right. supposed to have these hit the red alert. Like 78 percent of women think that girls should bear responsibility, bear responsibility for protecting for, boys with their dress. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, why is this? Why are we speaking out against this? I yep. mean, what, what what are we? What are we wanting to do? We wanted to dial that number down. Yeah. You want you wanted to be fewer women. Yeah. Because because we live in a culture that's now telling mothers that it's not the child's fault when they're sad or sick or hungry, you know. And there's there's an element of truth to that. I mean, the dependent one doesn't bear any of the responsibility. But what you're actually doing, the point I'm trying to make, is you're disempowering young ladies. When you tell them they don't have responsibility, you're also telling them they don't have any power you said they don't have control or choice, and all of that is true. If the narrative you want is they can do no wrong, just like a newborn, and, you know, the same, we now have to teach church leaders how to gentle parent their wives and their <laughs> sisters and their daughters. We have to teach parents how to be gentle with them for the rest of eternity. Right. Because That's not going to work. A newborn is not personally responsible for being hungry or wet. Right. But they are 100% dependent on somebody else to change that. Right. Right. And so that's basically it. We want to treat women and girls as if they have no agency, as if they are not um, autonomous and and therefore responsible for the choices they make in their autonomy. Right. Like, they, they want to have all, all action and no um, reaction to their action. And that's not, that's not leadership. That's, if, if they were boys, I would say that's, that's little kid boyish stuff. You aren't a man yet. Um, well, and the, but the women are saying that there's, the way it's being couched is that there's, particularly modesty. Honestly, it, it kind of confuses me because I can't imagine thinking this way, but to be insulted when somebody suggests <laughs> that you should dress a certain way, to be, to be yeah. actually mad at a person for saying that there's certain ways that you ought not present yourself. Right. To be mad about that well, that's just confuses me. You're used to me. taking responsibility. You're not used to passing the buck. Like, women are used to passing the buck and blaming other, blame shifting and nagging and pointing fingers and all of that stuff. Um, but yeah, one of the things one of the things the marketing department thought would be a good idea was to post a video of an old candid camera prank. Did you see that? Yes. The, this old candid camera prank, and the, the caption was basically, "We were told women aren't visual." First of all, nobody was ever told women aren't visual. That's just a bald faced lie. That's a personal fable. If anybody was saying it, it was one of the voices in their heads. Nobody said women aren't visual. Right. They tend to say men are more 
visual. And then... That's always the way I've heard it, too. Yeah. That they, that it's not like... And every time I've, I've heard statistics and, or read them in books or whatever, and they will... They always say, of course, there are exceptions to the rule, and this is generally speaking. Right. And they always say, it doesn't mean that women don't care about how... How men look. How yeah, men look. I know. I managed to get that whole message, too. But there are some among us who only have an attention span of about five words, and then they write book, books about those five words that they retained from 1983. Right. From a, from a youth service So in who said that women aren't visual? And it's a video of two young girls, look like they may be junior high girls or something. Yeah, I don't... I have a hard time judging the ages of people from, like, the 50s and 60s. I do, too, because they all look... They all look 30. They all look like they're old. (laughs) Everybody who's past the age of 12 looks like they're 30. I think the video said they were high school. They might be freshmen in high school. But it's supposedly this teacher, this young, good-looking teacher who comes in and has a chat with them, and then he leaves the room. And they basically just go gaga over Right, him. they giggle and they're, they're, they're making eyes at him and things like that. Yeah. And so my question then for the, for whoever thought that that video was making a feminist point, like whoever thought that that was some sort of devastating bit of information for the old purity culture, you know. Who sermons? says that women don't care how men look no matter what. Right, nobody says that. But the question, my, my question was, okay, so the girls came in, they were clearly interested in that dude, they thought he was hot. And they wanted to impress him. So here's my question. Set up a camera the next day. What kind of skirt are those girls going to wear when they come to school the next day? Because what we've been saying, what we being, you know, traditionalist Christians who are trying to help women be responsible for their part as much as the boys are responsible for theirs. If you like a guy and you see that he's cute and you want to get his attention, are you now going to wear a shorter skirt the next day? when you come to school in order to get him to look at you? And the answer is, if you have not been discipled and taught how to resist that temptation, very, very good chance that those girls are going to put on a particular outfit to get noticed by hot teacher the next day. In a particular way. Yes. Yeah, because that's their power. Their power is being able to get looks, right? So... So if you have a problem with the idea of gender roles or you have a problem specifically with the idea that you should be teaching girls that what they wear matters, that situation with the candid camera prank that they shared, <laughs> that Sheila's people shared on social media, actually does more to prove my point about how to teach boys and girls than it does to teach theirs. Because my point is, when you see a girl who clearly likes a guy, there, there's a, an attraction there. You have to have a conversation with her where you say, okay, my dear, my darling, my love, you are responsible to not give in to the temptation tomorrow to get him to look at you lustfully, to get him to look at you in a way that you, he notices your body. Right, because you're, you're encouraging him to sin. Right. You're, you're tempting him to sin. Right, right. And in trying to tempt him, whether he actually he gives in or not, you are sinning. If you, regardless of whether he officially lusts or not, it's none of your business. The point is that by being a temptress, you have already crossed that line. Well, but those books, the books that are being published are, never talk about that. Instead, they focus on on the guy. You know, he needs to be taught to control himself. We need to teach boys to control themselves. Right. And I've been saying 
multiple times. It's like, we do. We do keep the boys to control themselves. And you're making it harder by telling the girls they bear no responsibility whatsoever. Well, we do tell the boys to control themselves. And that's why they're going to grow up, and they're going to be leaders, and they're going to be men, and they're going to have... Um, authority, and, and the girls won't. That's why. Because I'm teaching, again, teaching my boys to take responsibility, whether they think that she was right or not. And that's what's going to differentiate. That's what's going to make him leadership material, and she will be a dependent for the rest of her life. Right. Right. So. Well, and there is a, like you said before, it's complicated. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a lot of different layers and, uh, um, things that are true, um, and they may seem somewhat contradictory, I suppose, at the beginning. But but women being dependent, quote unquote, dependent, is um, is part of God's design, right? You know, they are dependent to a certain extent on uh, on their husbands to you know, to provide to to give them a place where they can. Where they can establish a home, where they can have, they can run a household. Mm-hmm. Um, they're dependent. They can boss their kids. They're dependent on men <laughs> for that, um, and women can't do that by themselves. They can't produce children by themselves, <laughs> um, and there's something. There, there's patterns in nature to all of this stuff. And when you argue about it, and when you, when you get offended by it, when you get offended by the patterns in nature, mm-hmm. that's when there's a problem. When you are so offended by God's design that you feel like you need to write a book and, uh, and shame somebody for it. Now, most of the time, these Christian, these Christian authors especially, they never shame God. They never, they never blame God for that. But that's really what they're doing. Right. Is they're, they're shaking their fist at God. Um, and... Yeah. Well, there was another, there was another, uh, post on that social media page that I thought was interesting beyond just, well, when the women are complaining, when women are complaining, you just have to listen to her. That was one. Then there was another one that was like, we have been, women are leaving the church. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Uh... Oh, that's the one I posted, where women are leading the, leaving the church faster than men, and it's because we've been... Oh, yeah. It's no longer enough to disprove someone's reasons for not going to church. You have to actively make a compelling case for why she should go. Not compelling <laughs> to you, but to her. Why? Why do we have to do that? Because she's crying. Uh, women are leaving the church faster than men are, and among the youngest adults, female religious nuns outnumber the male nuns who don't identify as religious anymore. And that's N-O-N-E-S, <laughs> not N-U-N-S. Right, none, N-O-N-E-S. So that my favorite, this was my favorite part. Women are finding church spaces too difficult. We're discounted. We're objectified. The church can win women back if we're honest, if we're humble, and if we admit we've done wrong and fix it. And then this was thrown in there too as an afterthought. If we get back to Jesus. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll get back to Jesus. Oh yeah. Almost forgot. Almost well, forgot to mention Jesus. I bring Jesus. that up because these women really have convinced themselves that Jesus is the ultimate, like, the ultimate um, motherly, like, enabler. The ultimate coddler. Like, what it means to go and attend to the needs of all of these, the perceived needs of all of these crybaby women is to be, like, 
to be a Jesus. That's what it means to get back to Jesus. Like, when well, Jesus, we get back to coddling. Jesus is going to win the church. Jesus is going to win the women back. Right. And the reason that the women are gone is because we're, because we're not enough like Jesus. Right. Because everybody knows, everybody knows that an infant who's being neglected just packs his bags and walks out the door in an angry huff. Mm-hmm. That's, that's definitely a kid who still needs to be carried around by mom all the time and not like a rebellious toddler who's ready for discipline now. That's <laughs> totally what that means. We need to get back to the nursery maid kind of Jesus who just warms the bottle to exactly 98.6 and pops it, it in the mouth. enormously offensive to suggest <laughs> to these women that they need to be disciplined. Holy cow, they need the, to be disciplined. Because the question is who's going to discipline them? Well, that who, is a good question. Who is going to discipline them? That is a good question. And who I, has you know authority what? over them? I'm a little bit... Uh, that's a good question. I'm a little bit torn about it. Like, I'm not totally sure what that will actually look like in the church. Because I think... I, I think it's not necessarily supposed to be the pastors and the elders and the and even the husbands. Although that... There should be a little bit it more respect. It has to be the husbands. You know what? I think that this is where Titus says or the book of Paul says to Titus, that you're supposed to learn from the older women. I think this is where, like, an even more um, mature woman is supposed to step in and say to these little girls in grown women's bodies, you're embarrassing all of us. You're being a brat. You're, you're acting spoiled. Okay. Well, I would, I would go along with that. But, yeah. But they would be, that would require uh, fellowship. Yeah. And it would require permission. That's that's the reason I'm asking the question is because who is an authority over these women? Not not who like I know who the authority is supposed to be, but do they have anybody that they would even accept discipline from? Um, no, at this rate they wouldn't. And actually, we're actively working backwards right now. The thing the things women are listening to online are how to be less authoritative with their toddlers. So we don't even have experience being the boss of you know, the two and three year olds. So of course, when a woman gets to be in her fifties or sixties, that she's not going to be comfortable being the boss of a, you know, a 30 or 40 year old. Um, we, we don't recognize the signs when a kid is ready for weaning from the pacifier. So there's a lack of confidence that's being bred into our children, all, all of our children, yes, men and women. Yes. But how it manifests with the women is that we don't have anybody. We don't have anybody now that raises children with any confidence. Right. Right, and I, okay, so earlier, what much, much earlier you had asked, why don't the evangelical men who are on the speaking circuit stand up to Sheila and yeah. at all? Why are they actually afraid of her? And it's a little bit of this, too. First of all, men were not designed to be the ones who wage war with toddlers, so they don't have a lot of experience. Um, you know, usually women no, are the men ones... Just, men are, just want to give in, and, right. and they just want peace and quiet. Yes. No matter how old the kids are. That's why... Yeah. That's why teenagers can rebel against dad because right. dad just wants to give in and uh, and roll over. Right. So that that's having an effect. Like that's taking part in this whole complicated mess. Um, but but yeah. Also, the the culture is now saying that you know I said punch up, punch down is at play here. That they're telling us that it's punching down if a if a mom or dad, but but a mom makes rules for a toddler. If you set boundaries for your toddler and you do not cross them and you are extremely rigid and extremely authoritarian, um, that you... are stifling creativity. Yeah. You're you're being a tyrant. You're you're going to make them um, afraid. You're going to make them... 
you're going to create children that can't make a decision. <clears throat> right. They're going to have low self-esteem. They're going to have low self-esteem. They're they, going to like, be... Never mind the fact that low self-esteem has been more of a, like, a recent or modern concern and issue. We didn't seem to have problems raising strong, you know, uh, empowered people a hundred years ago or maybe 200 years ago. It's like since the pop psych stuff that's been being circulated on social media that people's self-esteem is going even further down. Yeah. Well, like they I don't seem to people, notice. There were people who had quote unquote low self-esteem, but you uh, identified them uh, differently back then. It used to be that you would, a person who you considered to have low self-esteem was just a person who was shy. A person who was yeah. reclusive and shy and who didn't speak up and, uh, and, and was sort of the wallflower type. You would automatically go, oh, that's a person who has low self-esteem. Hmm. And that might not, even be, might not even be true, but there was just sort of general understanding and I'm talking about well, my generation, older people. I think... Who would go... We would hear of these people with quote-unquote low self-esteem, and we would go, well, what does that person look like? Always, it was a person who was shy, didn't have a lot to say. Right. That person may not have had a low self-esteem. <laughs> that might have been one of the most confident people that you'd ever know. But right. Because we understood that. So them. confident, they didn't even have to talk all the exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. But, but there's been a lot... This generation is not the first generation to misdiagnose what's going on with people. Yeah, well, I think <clears throat> I think that goes to answer your question, too. I think that the evangelical men are the ones who actually have a problem with low self-esteem. I think that the, the women that we're raising in church oh, no think way too much of themselves. And um, I think it's only going to keep getting worse. And it's complicated because when you, when you spend too much time in an arrogant frame of mind, you spend too much time thinking about your own self... It starts to make you feel bad. Like you start to, you start to spiral into sort of a guilt slash. Um, <laughs> I don't know what else to say other than a low self esteem. You start to think less of yourself after sure. a while. But then, but this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, or on another podcast, as it may turn out. Um, <laughs> that you think that the whole world is is like you. And so if you're, if you've internalized all of this low self-esteem because you know that deep down you're not really that good a person. Right. Then you're not going to let somebody else speak to you because you think they're just like you. It's like, well, who are they to, they're, they're the same mess that I'm in. Right. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. It's very, there's a lot of different components at play here, but yeah, we live, we live in an age where it is much, much, much easier for a woman to stand up, publish a book that's, you know, self-serving and has shoddy, quote, research and is, you know, obviously a vanity project. It's much easier for a woman to publish a book like that and actually get some support for it than for a man who's been working for 30 or 40 years trying to establish his audience. Um, women are able to go in as discernment bloggers and be like, well, here's how this guy made me sad, and here's how this guy's hurting women, and here's how this right. guy's hurting women. And they can actually build a pretty decent platform that way. Yeah. A decent-sized platform. And the men are aware of that. They know that her power is actually in victimhood and that she's, that's a hot commodity right now, and that she's actually probably, she probably does have a certain ability to take, to destroy their well, career. Well, the books are already out there. That, that's my point. That what, what's he going to do? reel in all of his books and and everything he's ever written to keep because she's going to get a hold of it and she's going to tear it apart. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about it now. Well, I mean, if if the things 
if the accusations were true and if the things that had been written 30 years ago really were this damaging, then he should he should remove the books from the shelf and reel it all in and pack, pack up shop. But what I would encourage a man who's struggling with low self-esteem to do is to take a step back, evaluate what's really going on here, and then get a little bit mad. Get angry that this woman here is actually trying to give your wives and daughters cancer. She's actually trying to give them the exact same kind of toxic um, sickness, the sin sickness, that leads to more of a, of a mental health crisis. It leads to more um, loss of, of self-esteem. More loss. How do you like that? A, a greater loss of self-esteem. It leads to women who are less empowered. She's, she is disempowering women. And if you realize that, like, don't just take my word for it. Really think about this. Examine what's being done and examine the, the results of this social experiment and recognize it's not good for women. And when that happens, rather than backing down, which is what a cowardly boy does, stand up in a very authoritative way and say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be intimidated by somebody who's posing a threat to my flock. I'm not going to be intimidated by the she-wolf who is, for very selfish reasons, um, and, and also possibly possibly there's some naivety there, possibly there's some ignorance there, ignorance there. Um, but for whatever the reason, she poses a threat. Right. And, and so she needs to be stopped. She, the threat needs to be, um, what's the word? Isolated? What do we say? What do we, what do we say the word? Nipping in the bud. Yeah, that'll work, I guess. <laughs> what? There's a military term for, it's not isolate the threat, is it? Eliminate. Eliminate, I guess? Anyway, I, that's, I don't think that was it either. pretty severe. But... But yeah, well, the, I'm not saying eliminate the individual. I'm saying right. like, knock her lights eliminate out from the under, threat, not you know. Necessarily the source paint, of the threat. Paint a picture of the future for these women, because like you were saying earlier, and I was I was agreeing that I do not believe that Sheila Ray Gregor is trying to turn people away from the church. I do, I think she's going to be just as shocked as many of her followers and readers when her granddaughters are you know a bit like Frankenstein's monster. It's just completely out of control, and they like take all the tools they were given by grandma and they start destroying even her platform with it. Right. It's like, well, anybody can do this. Anybody can go back to your old books and say, here's the things you're gonna... Here's stuff the, to blow yeah, up. here's the things you need to regret. You need to regret telling women that complaining and arguing is because their husband just needs to listen. Like, the Bible very clearly says don't complain. And yet, here you are, in your podcast, telling men that they should listen when their women complain. You know? That's just... You think the granddaughters are gonna say that? Well, they probably wouldn't pick up on that. Um, I don't know. But they will They will I, say... I thought your point was that the granddaughters are going to continue to push the envelope even farther. And so you've got this... Part of the reason that feminism... Part of the reason the country hasn't been completely destroyed yet is because there's still enough of a framework of uh, Christian morality and ethic in place that it's, it's still holding us together. Now, it's falling apart quick, but your point, I thought, was that we're, we're teaching girls now to uh, to be strong, be loud, get mad, lean into your feelings, don't right. let anybody tell you that, that there's something wrong with following your heart. Right. And so, the reason that that hasn't destroyed the country yet is because there's still a framework of women who are like, mm, that's wrong, honey. 
Um, but we're teaching more and more and more girls to do that. Right. And, and eventually, that framework is going to be gone. And so when it's gone, the girls who are who are only told, hey, follow your heart, you're always right, don't take anything from anybody, you do what you want to do, you can do everything that boys can do better than what boys can do it. Um, right. When that becomes the framework itself, well, then there's no limit to how wicked right. people will behave. Right. What I'm trying to do, though, and that is what I said, and I agree with that. What I'm trying to do is pinpoint, like, exactly what phrase they're going to wage war again. When no one else on earth says the word modesty anymore, because we've been com- we've completely eliminated it from our vocabulary, and we stop referring to women as stumbling blocks, because... Because, first of all, that's just such a really popular phrase these days. We hear that all the time, right? Not just <laughs> not oh, just from yeah, things yeah, yeah. published in the 70s. But when that's been yeah, completely struck through, nobody... Like when it's hate speech and you can go to jail for using the phrase stumbling block. Now, well, what, what will what they pick up example? on? another example? Like when the word modesty becomes a dirty word. Would you suggest to somebody that they be modest? Yeah. What would it be... What is a word that we would... That you used to say to somebody, you know, years ago, but now you can't say it because it, because it has a derogatory. <laughs> uh, I can't. I was trying to think of an example because I agree with you. That it, eventually, if you tell somebody, if you tell somebody that they're being modest, it, it's going to be a put down. Right. Um, well, I'm trying to figure out. I'm maybe that's to... already that way. Maybe if you already tell somebody that they're being modest, it, it's it's like. It's like calling them a doormat. It's like calling them a. It's like calling them oh, milk toast. Yeah, that it. Oh, you're just being modest. Has been a. It's not necessarily a compliment. Oh, you're just. You're not telling the truth. You're lying politely. Is basically what modesty means. You're lying politely. You're covering up who you really are. When really who you are is this amazingly. So the word loud, modest. You think the word modest will eventually come to mean uh, hypocritical? Like it already kind of does mean that. Yeah. It's like, oh. Tell tell somebody that they're being modest, you're calling them a hypocrite. Well, you're saying you're not telling the truth. You're saying you're not really being honest about how great you are. Yeah. That's interesting. I think we're already kind of there. Yeah. I think we're already kind of there. Modest really isn't a uh, compliment. Right. Right. But I'm I'm trying to figure out what it is that that Sheila's grandchildren and my, my grandchildren will, will gang up on Sheila for. Like, what teaching are they going to suddenly realize is, you know, it's just so toxic and so bad. It it may or may not be truly toxic, but um, but eventually they will find some reason because people you know eat their own. You know what I predict? What I predict it'll be Jesus Himself. Oh, okay. I predict that the uh, that the future religious people. I mean, it, it's they won't even call themselves Christians. They can, they won't bring themselves because that's exclusive, right? You know, and it and it's uh, it's snobby. It, you're saying you're better than other religions when you say that Jesus is the way. So my prediction is that these Christian authors who are writing today, mm. like Sheila Ray Gregor, about how how we need to get back to Jesus, that will be the thing that she gets in trouble for. Yeah. Well, and and she may not get in trouble so much as. Like, will she be 90 years old, you know, tottering around and and apologizing and, and saying that she's really thankful that her girls have far surpassed her in all of these areas? Maybe, if she's still, if she's still yeah. cognizant enough to want to be loved, quote-unquote, by, yeah. by her tribe, then yes, she'll, she'll absolutely apologize for being so yep. hardcore about getting back to Jesus. Yep, that could be. 
that the redactions in the future will be redactions of everything that he was was even a little bit hinted toward biblical. And why stuff. I think that's right is because that's basically what Jesus predicted. Huh. <laughs> didn't he? So you cheated. Didn't he say? <laughs> you peeked at the key. Didn't he say it's all going to be me? Yeah, I'm not. I'm getting you this. Peeked from, at the teacher's manual. I'm getting this from another source. Yeah. It's not coming from me. But that's what he said. He said, "Man, they they hate me, so they're going to hate you." Yep. And ultimately, it's all going to come back to Christ. All going to come back to Jesus, and He's going to be the one that has everybody so mad. And then. That's what, and there's already, man, as we have this conversation, I'm starting to become depressed. Because <laughs> this sort of stuff is already happening in the culture. These are already the conversations from progressive Christians. Right. You know, they already shame us. They already don't talk about Jesus. Like John Pavlovich doesn't talk about Jesus. but Except. Except to <laughs> shame those of us who still identify as Christians right. and still talk about Jesus. Yeah. And, he, and, and so he shames us. But he doesn't. He doesn't actually. He doesn't actually disparage Jesus. But his grandkids will. Yeah. Yep. They will be more open. They will be more uh, explicit. And they will be completely unimpressed with his cowardice and his lack of a backbone to just stand up and say what they're saying. Uh, yeah. Although, like I said, I think that these, you know, progressive egalitarian, like culture Christians, I would say, the people who are real into, like, pop psych stuff that comes from the culture and not the Bible, I think that they will probably uh, adapt. I think that by the time they're, you know, the ancient ones in the <laughs> on the scene, that they will be willing to pass the torch completely and defer completely to their kids. Because they're already doing that. They're already deferring to their toddlers and their, you know, infants. The infants can do no wrong. And, oh, right. Well, they won't, they won't be... Sure, if they, if they just admit. roll over and say, oh, you children are way more enlightened than yeah. we are, and you know more than we do, then yeah, the I kids, the kids won't chance. be mad at them for that. Yeah, I think there's a good chance that'll happen. I think there's a really good chance that, like, the relationship between John Pavlovitz and his great-great-grandchildren, or Sheila Gregor and her great-great-grandchildren, will be one of just, like, empty praise, just constantly from grandparent to grandchild. Well, that's already happening too. Yes, I know. We've already got well, here's the grandparents thing. who are talking about how how much smarter and more spiritual their grandkids are when their grandkids know nothing. Oh, I see. There's a yeah, somebody in the, there's a crash here. There's somebody in the ditch. Although it, it doesn't actually, what does that mean? I have no idea. Why is this? Oh, not... he wants me in this lane. Okay. Yes. I thought he was telling me to slow <laughs> he looks down. Like he's mad at you. Well, he, I didn't understand his signal. Dude, not everyone speaks cop sign language. There we go. That guy. That guy makes some sense. Right. That guy. Well, that guy was doing the arm thing. He was yeah. like waving and right. The other guy was just pointing down at the ground. Anyway. He could have done this, and Carl can't see me, but he could have moved his hands like this, like... Yeah. There was a number of ways he could have over. indicated a shift, other than just repeatedly pointing at the ground. It looked like his fists were closed, too, but it, when we got closer, you could see he was actually pointing with his index fingers. How, how does that come through, too, when the GPS starts talking? How does that work on the... It's, it sounds... You can hear it. You can hear it, but does it completely cut us off? Oh, I don't think so. We'll see, won't we? We'll find out. Because we're recording. It's recording through the 
Yeah. I don't know. I it's don't know how It's very much a, a road trip, Carl's going. We'll find out. Well, my, the point that I was trying to make was that prophecy... Prophecy is not about, like, just take... Be quiet, Google. It's, it's not about taking again. random shots in the dark. Like, it's not about just, like, predicting... No, prophecy is knowing for sure what's going to happen because God told you. Well, like, okay, I guess, if you want to use your... You want to use your seminary definition, I'm, I'm fine with that. But I was saying, like, for people who don't know how, somebody, like, um, somebody can go, hey, in ten years this is the problem we're going to be struggling with, or whatever, and be very, very confident about it. It's because of recognizing patterns. You're not just, like, you're not just taking a wild stab. Right, we're not rolling dice here. Yeah. We're... We're looking at what's already happening. So when you're like, saying, this is making me depressed because I'm already seeing this from this person and that right. person. You can already see. It's like, right. Well, that's why it's a pretty good prophecy or guess or well, you know, prediction. Well, and the, the thing is that people who pay attention to the culture, they see these things long before they happen. And then right. people who don't pay attention to the culture get blindsided by it. And they're like, well, how could anybody have ever seen this coming? And it's like, well, you could have seen it coming. <laughs> you could have. Um... And but that's what w there's a there's a part of me that's starting to understand that being able to see it coming um, doesn't really change anything. I mean, yeah. you, you don't you can't stop it. You can't stop it from coming um, because yeah. because you start predicting it as a prophet, if you will, and people go, "Oh, you're crazy." You know, you're, oh. what do you, that's not gonna, that's you not going to happen. You could still write some books of your own, like C.S. Lewis, that are just amazingly apt and prophetic and applicable and then those could have a real impact on the world like he he knew what he was doing he wrote some stuff right but everybody but if you look at it now you read c.s lewis and you go oh he was right but what can you do about you it you can read it to colin and then <laughs> hopefully colin will become an actual man and hopefully he'll also know how to pick a wife who's not a harpy or a shrew and you well know, she she knows how to control her harpy shrewness. He can pick a Lucy instead of a Susan. Right. And, you know. You know. Yeah. Okay. There's there's good things that can come from it. We have some control. Well, we're doing this podcast. We continue to do this podcast and talk about stuff. So it really if, is better. As if that helps anything. It really is better to be the most mature person in a system rather than the in an immature system than to be the least mature in a And why system. is that? Because we were created to work. We were we were given time here on Earth and these bodies to work. And so even though it's hard, that doesn't mean bad. Hard doesn't mean bad and easy doesn't mean good. So if you want the easiest or the path of least resistance, then yeah, stay a baby forever. But if you want to really embark on an adventure that, that God has laid out before you, then grow up. Grow up. Be an adult. Take responsibility. You know? uh, I think it's a good thing... I don't disagree with what you said. I think it's a good thing for a different reason, for a more um, pragmatic and maybe selfish reason. Okay. And that is that when you are the most mature person, you you don't get surprised as often. Like you don't see. Maybe it's maybe it's just pessimism is what I'm describing here. <laughs> Some but, people aren't afraid of surprises. <laughs> but you don't get you don't get blindsided, like. Uh, for example, I, I was told when I was young that it's bad to have debt. It's bad to have financial, you know, credit card debt yeah. and so on. And I was like, okay. Now, I didn't necessarily know that 
from first-hand experience. I was just told that by somebody who was older and somebody who didn't have a habit of lying to me about stuff, and so I assumed that they were telling the truth. And so when it came time to um, not have debt, we we didn't have debt. And we've been debt-free, quote-unquote, for a long time, since you guys were kids. Right. And it makes things better from the standpoint of now I can look at that and I can say, oh, when my car breaks, for example, when something happens to my car, I'm not, my entire financial well-being is not thrown into upheaval. Right. Because I don't have debt. I don't, I'm not paying off thousands of dollars of credit card debt every month. And so there's right. income, I don't want to call it expendable income, but there's income that isn't necessarily earmarked for things. Right. So that when something unexpected happens, when I do get blindsided, it doesn't throw everything into turmoil. Right. And it, you're saying that's better. Even I'm saying that's though. better. Even though I'm saying that, that that's a that's a sort of maturity. It's a mature person who says, oh, I have $20. I'm not going to spend this $20 right now because I might need to spend it for something else later. Right. That's, a, that's more <laughs> mature than a child who goes, oh, what can I buy for this $20? Right. I agree. But what I'm saying is you're claiming that that is better to have that $20 for when you need it later is actually better objectively and pragmatically, even though what you're going to hear the result of your maturity is going to be listening to all of the immature kids say, must be nice to be rich. Must be nice to have everything handed to you. Because that's what happens when you rise to leadership is you've got all these other immature people underneath you who don't understand how you got there and also undermine your efforts at every point. No, I I agree, but I'm I'm prepared for that as well. I mean, I'm I'm mature enough to know that that is what's going to happen. Right. That they're going to go, oh, you didn't have any money. You must have been lucky. You must be nice. You're rich. You stole it from somebody else. You're one of the rich people. Right. I know know that that's what's going to happen. You know what Jesus says about rich people, right? He hates them. But I am so mature. (laughs) I am so mature that I'm even grateful to God Almighty that I don't think like those people that I, I realize oh what a burden it must be what a what a what a life you must live if you look at somebody with twenty dollars and you're full of envy and bitterness and rage and you are you can't be content right. you, can, you can't enjoy a moment of happiness because you're so worried about my twenty dollars right. you're so consumed with my twenty dollars that you can't enjoy the five dollars that you have right that's poison. That's prison. Yep. And uh, I'm mature enough to know that I uh, I don't feel that way. That's the peace of mind I'm talking about. That's the contentment that I'm talking about that comes with maturity. Right. And it does. And that is why if you are a pastor or a parent who cares about those underneath you, those you are in authority over, you must prevent them from reading books that encourage them to stay immature. You must. You must warn them. Only read these books if you want to mock them or figure out what not to do. If you want to read them to compare how different they are from what's written in Proverbs toward those who want to be wise, be wise. Don't read these best-selling books that are encouraging you to be victim-minded and to cry at other people to fix your problems instead of taking responsibility for your own. Because it will stunt them and it will make them immature and perpetually babies. And that's that's not good for them in the long run. It's better in the long run. For your children to rise up and become leaders 
who are um, accused of wrongdoing that's not true, that's unjust, or, you know, accused of being rich people that Jesus hates. It's better to be accused of being wrong than to actually be wrong. I've been saying this for years. I wrote a blog post years and years ago when I first had kids, and I was was realizing all of these lessons I was teaching them that were so completely counterculture. I was not gentle parenting on purpose, with a mission, for a reason. I knew that I was not going to stunt them the way that these gentle parents are stunting their children. And I wasn't going to make any apologies for it. And so even then, I realized that it, the way that they were going to be um, re- received by their peers when they were older was going to be sneer, sneering, derision, snide, and, like, oh, you're so privileged. And yeah. it's like, what's ironic is that this whole time their parents, you know, while my kids are young... The other parents with kids, my kids' age, are like, oh, you're abusing them. They were you know? shaming you for being too rigid You're going to hurt unloving. them. They're just going to grow up and they're going to be so, so mentally ill. And it's like, no, mine are actually doing great. <laughs> and then when theirs turn out to be really, really not okay, then we have to come up with another reason for that. So then it's going to be, well, the church and the, the culture and, you know, well, patriarchy, privilege. And so I knew my kids were going to be accused of being privileged. Long before, you know, before they were even in elementary school. They were still in preschool. Well, the problem is that there's some truth to the fact that the church is responsible for this. Yeah. There's some truth to that. The accusation, the truth, the, the church actually did fail a lot of these families because they're, because they have books from Sheila Ray Greger in their <laughs> library. Yes. Yeah, we haven't done a great job of identifying the root problem of things. And so the first person to jump up and say, oh, it's men, you know, they they get airtime and they get published. And a lot of they leadership is just like... lead women's groups. A lot of times it's just confidence. Like a lot of leadership is just saying things with a it's whole lot of bluster. gumption. Yeah. It's it, just, it's just uh, saber rattling. It is. It is. And the irony is that the women who are the most outraged by the, the patriarchy, they really do think that men have just held sway over the entire universe for millennia because they were just really really muscular like they were assertive right they would pound their chest and assertive and And so so they're doing the same thing now and they are getting a little bit of traction as far as they're they're selling some books for the you know because there's a lot of sinful men who are like oh thank goodness i was so tired of being a leader right here you take it my chest chest is sore i'm tired of standing i'm tired i'm tired of taking charge and having responsibilities here right here you're just as good as i am you're just as smart as i am you're just as capable as i am you go girl right so what's happening there to go back to the prince caspian analogy is that they're they're surrendering their authority to susan not to Lucy, who actually did see Jesus, but uh, to Susan, who's just being led by her fears, and then she's just going to do her best to ape what she thinks a high king is supposed to sound like, and they're going to they're going to end up in the same place. They're going to be lost in the woods and heading the wrong direction. But you know, at least Peter doesn't have to go and apologize to Aslan when they're all said and done. You know, at least at least he's not the one that's well, going right. to take the he blame. He doesn't think he does, but he actually does. He does. He, he but... does have to go and apologize because. Like it or not, fellas, you are the high king. Yep. And uh, that's the role that God gave us. And so you do have to apologize if you if you advocate your responsibilities to your wife because she's, quote-unquote, as capable as right. you are. Whether or not she's capable is not the point. The point is that it's been given to the right. men. No, what she's actually... <laughs> she needs to work on being more capable and 
sitting down and being quiet and reading right. things that are edifying to right. she needs to, be, <laughs> to her she's, spirit. She's not capable of being a, a female she's not, leader. She's not capable of turning down a really great Amazon deal when somebody's advertising something that's going to make her life worse. It's really not good. <laughs> not one of her strengths there. <laughs> not good at turning off social media whenever there's a post... <laughs> on there, right? She's she's not yeah. good at she's not good at recognizing. Oh, this is the very sin that got that brought death into the world. Right. And uh, I'm 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 just wanting, like my mother Eve. I'm wanting my husband's authority and position. And ah, uh, I wrote about that a few days ago. It didn't end up like I wanted it to. Like it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to when I started. But I basically was writing to single or divorced women about why they're fantasizing about getting remarried getting married or remarried is not going to turn out the way that they think it's going to it's like all i'm not saying you shouldn't get married i'm not saying you don't need a husband what i'm saying is it sounds you don't, like that's what you're saying you don't need him to do your dishes which is what you think you think you need a guy who's no. going to be like a, a second pair of hands for all the housework Somebody and the child to help raising. out around the house yes they think that they think it's all a about partner. like Yes, a partner in the domestic. Ability. Not really a partner as much as an assistant. Assistant, yeah. <laughs> a Somebody partner. To back her up. Partner has equal power and has a say in things. An assistant's what you really want right. in a husband. They, they want a uh, personal, right? A personal assistant. Somebody to... who knows that you've got it all together and you're doing things right, and you just need somebody to execute your backup, your perfect plan. She just wants backup. Yeah. Somebody to attend the school meetings with her to tell the principal and the and the teachers how to raise the children in their absence. Right. Um, <laughs> and so that's that's what they're looking for. And I'm like, listen, that's not how it's going to work out. Like, marriage is a good thing, not because it fulfills all of your wishes for your, you know, selfish ambition, but because oh, it reveals gosh. to you all of your weaknesses. It reveals what you do badly. Do you think that the culture is even worried about... Do you think the women are even worried about getting married anymore? Yeah, that, yes. And I think they're always going to have a desire for it. They'll just give slightly different, like, surface reasons for it. So do you think that the reason that women want to get married is because they want an assistant? Because they've It's got, because they're unhappy. They've got ideas about... No, okay, and so they want unhappy. to get married because they're because it will make them happy. They they suspect that there might be something there that they're missing that that might lead to happiness. And again, there's it's complicated. There's some things about marriage that would have that potential, but not for the reasons they think. Right, not because not because it's fun and uplifting and, and not because it it's makes a holiday. You, right, not because it's a holiday, but because it actually confronts you with your with who you are and it, and it holds up a mirror so that you can see your actual despicableness right and uh and then you have the option to beg god to help you uh be less despicable right and then in that sense it does make you a better person you have that option and or it will make you happier or you can look in the mirror and go you know i'm tired of society telling me i need to put some makeup on my pimples so i'm gonna let my armpit hair grow Did and you see that picture there's like pictures now of women who are who are embracing what what's called natural beauty or uh -huh. real beauty or whatever. What do you mean now? That's been happening a lot. Well, I saw day. it just today. There was somebody who, who, some actress who, like her armpit hair was on full display. Uh huh. I'm like okay, well, good for you. Good for you. That is definitely beautiful. Uh, the thing about armpit hair is it's not particularly attractive on anybody yeah. you know I mean you don't look at men's armpit hair and go yeah he's got it going on um, 
course, I don't look at anything on men and think that it's... Well, that goes back to your question of why... Why are people offended? Why are women specifically offended when you say this is how you should dress? That goes all the way up. I mean, when you... Never mind suggesting that God created women to be glorious in their appearance, to reflect his beauty by being beautiful and by learning how to take care of their hair. Like, don't even go there. That's offensive at level 100. But, you know, but even just saying, hey, maybe you should wash your face and brush your teeth for the fact that other people don't want to deal with your morning breath. And it's like, I don't do it for other people. If I'm going to brush my teeth, I'm going to do it for myself. Or if I'm going to wash my face, I'm going to do it because I like to have a clean face. I'm not going to do it for others. Like, that's <laughs> been a long time coming. That's been ever since like the probably the 60s, at least second wave feminism, if not first wave, started planting the seeds of that idea that it's offensive to suggest that a woman has some sort of, you know... Some sort of thing that's offensive to other people. Yeah, some, yeah. that she should have some care about her place in society and about that, what others think. That not everything about her is glorious and and. All by itself. And, and worthy of praise. Right. There are women who have completely gotten rid of their mirrors in their households because they claim they just don't care how they look anymore. It doesn't matter. What matters is how they feel on the inside. And that is a direct rebellion against their the created order also. I mean, even oh, yeah. even birds will preen and, you know, look in the, look in the bath water of the bird bath and be like, Ooh, I am... Wait, wait, there's a feather out of place. Let me just get that. Oh, there. Now I am all that. I am looking Even good. birds. Looking sharp. Right. Um, but, but yeah, women well, are going against to do, that. You, the, the, way you, the way you present yourself, your physical appearance, says something about you. Right. I mean, and that's been true. That's been true ever since Adam and Eve first decided that they needed to cover up. Right. And it's, it's difficult for women... Very, very difficult, mostly because they don't have teachers in this area. And I, yeah, even I think back on, like, the lessons growing up, and I'm not sure that this was well, not sure this was well established among the young girls, but the idea that we should not try to get gazes, we should not try to entice sexual gazes, but we do have a responsibility to look lovely, yep. That that's hard for yep. For women well, it's to hard grasp, to, to draw the line and figure out where the where the edges of that are. But right. I used to, when I was teaching youth group, I had a lesson about um, about this, about how you look and and how you present yourself. And it was modesty was the thrust of it. But I said the idea that that there's that you shouldn't have to dress a certain way, that you shouldn't need to look a certain way. Yeah. Um, it's just false. I said, you make judgments on how people look all the time. That's the only thing that you have to go by unless you know the person. You right. know, most of your impressions about people are based on how they look. Right. And like if, if we saw a guy walk in here and he was wearing a blue uniform with a badge and he had a gun on his hip, what would you think he was? You no, know, you'd be a cop. I go, exactly. Right. And if it turns out that he was a baker, would you have some questions? Right. You know, would you go, why are you dressed like that? Of right. course you would. Right. We're actually stunting our children in this department, too. I brought up these statistics, I think, before we started recording. But, um, I mean, there's demonstrable evidence that because of all the screen time that kids are getting and how most of their interactions are not like football out in the yard, but they're like, you know, Minecraft with a group of people on the Internet or 
Um, or they don't know. They don't. They haven't seen. Well, they can. That's not totally true. They they can get to know them. They haven't seen them. But yeah, they don't actually interact with body language anymore. And so now kids are actually having a harder time reading human language, re- reading human body language, right. and knowing how to interact with somebody when they can see their face. Because you were talking about how our appearance says something about us, and then you said, you know, unless you know them, but. But the truth is that even if you know a person, if they show up wearing something different than what they usually do, including a different facial expression, that should, you should notice. Like, you should be able to read that. And people are losing that skill because they haven't had practice with it. Um, but this is because we are telling them not to judge at all instead right. of teaching I them was, how to judge properly. I was just about to ask that question. I was yeah. about to say, well, part of the reason is because we've told people that you should never judge another person right. for anything. Yeah, that's silly. Let alone, you, you shouldn't judge somebody for even how they act anymore, let alone what they look like. Yeah, that's silly. And do you want to know something that's really interesting about technology as it stands now or where we're trying to go with it? Um, scientists have been trying to build robots that will do, like, basic domestic tasks, like human tasks, for a long, long time. That would be awesome. It would be awesome. Uh, But they're running into a particular problem. And the problem is not the problem they thought it would be when they first started out. So when they first started, like, building robots, they were like, oh, it's going to be really hard to program these robots to, to, like, jump and bend and, like you know, move their hips and things like that. But that actually is not really that much of a hurdle. Like, they've studied the bone structure of humans. They've studied muscular, you know, the way that our muscle system works. And they're they're able to build robots now that are pretty dexterous. I mean, not they're still not perfect, but, but like, blinking eyes and stuff like that. Have you seen some of the robots with the, like, facial yeah. movement? Yeah. It's creepy. But it, like they don't quite look human. Not they quite. still look a little soulless. It's but, a little weird still. But yeah. but there's a reason for that. It's not because the it's been a hard thing to program robots to move. That's not the problem. <coughs> the problem is that humans are reactive and responsive and it's hard to get a robot to respond to all of the various data that we're responding to almost subconsciously. Right. Like there are so many things that we do that are not like Step by step formulaic. Like, there's so much input that philosophers have actually been philosophizing about this for a long time. That that there's no way that you could ever completely predict um, or um, outline morality. Like, you could never take ethics and turn it into a complete, like, authoritative um, text, for example. You couldn't just have a big old flow chart that tells you, which is the problem because a robot works on a flow chart. You have to program using what's essentially an electronic flow chart. Yes. And you can't plot all of the points a human would take ethically and morally on a chart because there's there's so many judgments. Too many if-then statements. If this happens, then If this, do this. If this, do this. And so, like, you react so quickly. There's so many times that, um, that you don't even realize that you're, what you're doing is actually a reaction to something. Because it's a stimulus that maybe you weren't even aware was happening. Yeah. Like the way that you might suddenly become aware that there's this really grating noise in the background that you had been ignoring up till that point. Right. But then all of a sudden you realize it's been there the whole time. Right. And you're somehow, 
your uh, your brain knows how to filter out yes. all of that stuff, which is a judgment. And and a, and a robot can't. Right. A machine can't. It takes in all of the input and has to process all of it. Right. And so it, and then how how does it determine what's background noise, what's right. foreground noise? It would have to be told, and we as humans don't even know how we do it no. yet. Um, well, I was just about to say that there is. Uh, I agree with all that. But there's another level too, and that is the way we communicate is a lot of it is um, intuitive, you know, right. like like we like sarcasm, for example. We can we can say things sarcastically, we can say things facetiously, or we use satire. Right. We know what we're trying to say, but a machine has no idea. Correct. You know, all it can do is take what is actually being said. Right. And interpret but it. But you could, like, they have wondered if you could teach a robot how to detect. Sarcasm satire. or satire, yeah. um, and so they've, you know, they're they're asking that question. But the the point is, how many like you know kilobytes of data it would take to get a robot to ask all the right questions and then perform all the right functions as a result of the answers to those questions? They they can't do it. Certainly, no. like humans do. No, yeah. and I don't think they'll ever be able to do it because it happens because there's a spiritual element to the way we. Think well, it happens because can't be duplicated in mind. software. God built us. God built us, and we're insanely complicated. And continues to interact with us. I yeah. I think that the that the spirit world, for lack of a better term, is actually influences the thinking that we do. Okay, that's a possibility. Well, I think I I think that it I think that there are thoughts. You know that we have that just simply don't originate. They don't originate in our brains, yeah. and so it has nothing to do with our wiring. It has to do with the way that right. wiring what, is being influenced by the stuff outside of it. Outside of it, but that was what Peterson was saying when he was talking about this. He was talking about Elon's self-driving cars and how um, they have to be programmed based with satellite imagery, not based on perception. So they're not seeing the road. With some, with some exceptions. So they have, like, if there's an obstacle in the road, there's a sensor that will pick that up, and they've been told what to do to avoid an obstacle. Right. But he was like, but if you've got, you know, people on one side of the road and more people on the other, you've got an infant on one side of the road and three old ladies on the other. How does it decide? How would it decide? You know, it probably <laughs> what it would do right now is just blast through both of them because it wouldn't be able to make a decision the right. way that a human has to make a decision. And he's like, you don't even know how you would make that decision. Like, in the moment, no. it would be sort of a spontaneous, That's you know... That's what we call a reflex. Reflex thing, yeah. It, it doesn't go all the way to your brain. It goes right. to your... It, it goes Nervous just system. up to your brain stem, <laughs> yeah. and then you react. You don't think about those things. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very... It's very funny. And I think that's why the video I sent you and Luke earlier was funny. Did you actually watch that? There was... Do you remember... Did you ever <laughs> see the movie iRobot? Yes. Because that's the premise of iRobot. That's this is another spoiler, by the way. But the the, the reason that, uh, that what's his name Will Smith doesn't like robots is because there was an auto accident and they, he was uh, yeah, involved in, and he wanted the robot to save the kid in the car, but the robot saved him instead ah. because it calculated that, that he, he had a better well, he had a better odds of survival, so, ah. that, so it made a decision based on math and probability, right? And uh, instead of value, in, instead of the value of the life, right? Yeah. So right, well, the it values life based on math instead of yeah. Well, that's all. It all relates to ethics, and what Peterson said was he thinks 
that he's working on a theory that there are no judgments that are not value or ethical. There are no judgments that aren't ethical. Ooh, I kind of like that. Isn't that interesting? They're all they all come down to some moral judgment of some sort, and some We've of them we're aware that. of. We've said that on this podcast that there's no there's no neutral ground. Right. It's all right. good or evil. That we have said. But he's saying, like, you actually, it's physically impossible to make a choice if there isn't some moral grounding for it, if there isn't foundation for it. He also had some suggestion that maybe depression and anxiety is... um, The realization of that? No, depression and anxiety is, like, basically an obstacle. It's like a, a thwarting of the person's moral system for making judgments. So it's like freezes. It's a paralysis, basically, of the ability to make judgments based on fear or um, usually fear. But mm-hmm. And he didn't go very deep and I'm, I'm heavily fleshing well, out what I he would, barely right, right, right. touched. I, I think all of that stuff is interesting and that goes, that bumps up against what I was saying earlier because what is fear? Is that a thing that you can, can you program a machine yeah. Yeah, he thinks fear? that fear is a spiritual entity and, and anger and even and happiness too. He said that they're basically their 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 personalities. It's spirit. It's right. spirit. It's not. I, it's I not agree tangible. with that, and that's why. That's why I'm not as worried about AI as some of our friends because. Well, because it's just okay. But what we're saying though is that you are invoking spirits if you, as a human being, are you know channeling them when if you're angry while you're using AI, for example, if the person programming the AI is fearful about something, then you actually can the next right onto Indiana 54. You can program a robot to be, I guess, demon possessed, right? For lack of a better term, I don't know how. Because, I don't know how because it can be, you can a demon, invoked unless a demon can get into, you know, a machine and work it, which I I guess no, you you invoked it, like Indiana you put it into the machine. You put your fears and your anger and your so you have you have brought that spiritual reality. You invited it in into this, you know, reality into into a physical. You allowed it to have a body. You embodied the spirit of anger by giving it a place to work out. You, you're, a human body does that, but you can't. You can't make an ATM machine evil. No, not an ATM because that wasn't. It was designed for a very, very limited function. But if you, if you build a a Roomba, yeah, you can't make a Roomba evil. <laughs> I don't know. If you, I suppose, I suppose everything's a matter of degree, right? So it's yeah. like I. You heard the story about the Roomba that went through and, and the dog had pooped on the yeah. rug and the Roomba went and spread all over. Yeah. Now, I guess you could make a case that that was an evil. Oh, so what I was saying about the video before, did you did you look at the video oh. I sent you and Luke? That's where we're going. Oh. Almost thank, there, Carl. Thank, thank goodness. It was a video of this uh, this woman had, <laughs> did you say you have to pee again? Mm-hmm. The woman was videotaping so you don't see her, but she's chucking stuff at her husband and he, when he's not looking, he can catch anything. Like, she'll call his name and throw something at him. And then he'll catch it reflexively. <laughs> really? Down there, you have to go down that little, whole, that little drive and then go down there. I guess. I Apparently we're going down into a barn. I don't know, man. I don't see anybody here. Neither, but we're pretty early. We're 40 minutes early. Good. I have to go to the bathroom. I don't know if you're gonna we didn't eat any lunch, lunch either, should we? They're not making, they're not serving lunch. They're doing dessert. We're going to die. Thanks for visiting the Comedian's House. 
If you want to spend more time with our family, you can follow John Branion on YouTube and Facebook. Also email nextdoor at johnbranion.com with your comments and questions. We'll see you next time.